We continue then this morning our series in 1 Corinthians, and we have come to the 10th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. And we will be looking at this, this text in this chapter probably in three sermons. And we will be looking this morning at the first 13 verses. Will you bow with me in prayer before we read this portion of God's Word? Our Father, we humble ourselves before Thy gracious hand in the knowledge that we could never have saved ourselves, we could never have brought ourselves into a savable state. We could not contribute to our justification, nothing whatsoever. It is all of grace from first to last. We are thankful also for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit within our lives, applying daily the gospel to the believer's heart. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would take very, very seriously the warnings that we find in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, powerful, strong warnings that are offered to a Christian congregation as they were tempted to sin and perhaps had fallen into sin. We ask that as a congregation we would grow in holiness of life, in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we are thankful for the word read and proclaimed. May it enter every believing heart. And for those among us today who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that the Holy Spirit would do the strange and wonderful work of regenerating hearts and converting souls. And these things we ask, again, with humility and reverence, in the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ." Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the Apostle Paul has been teaching at this point the church in answer to their questions about how to regard food offered to idols. And in the end, he says, meat is meat. There are no deities behind the idols, and those who say that one could eat meat freely as a believer, they are correct. However, not everyone has a conscience that is free to eat this meat. And therefore, the strong should bear with the weak and refrain from eating if a brother might be tempted to follow suit in doing so and thereby sinning against his own conscience. But Paul must also warn those who believe that they are free to eat meat that this overweening self-confidence that can be in the heart of those who are strong in this matter will inevitably lead them to sin. And Paul in this chapter definitely points to some settings in which it is simply not right for believers to participate. Sometimes there are things that are simply not right for Christians to do. There are places that it is not right for Christians to go. And one of those places and one of those things was going into the temples of pagan Corinth and participating in the meal of sacrifice that was offered to idols. Now, at the end of chapter 9, you will remember that Paul also had spoken about the race and the effort of running that race. And by a little connective word in the Greek New Testament, he connects that passage with chapter 10, the passage we have read this morning. And he relates what has been said about running the race to the complacent among them the danger of showing that they had entered the race and perhaps not by faith and thereby will not end or finish the race at all. Because only true believers persevere to the end because they are preserved by the promise of God. Now, to point all of this out and to bring it home, the Apostle Paul, you will have noticed as we read the passage, takes them several times to themes found in the Old Testament where God's Word is given as a warning to the church at Corinth, and thereby also a warning to us as professing Christians about these things that can lead to sin. And so the first thing we see as we come to the passage is the privileges of the fathers, the privileges of the fathers, and we see it in the first four verses. The fathers, most of them, delivered from Egypt by God's mighty hand, were very privileged people, but that generation, all but two, died in the wilderness. I would not have you ignorant, he begins here in verse 1. This is very important. I want you to listen. What I'm bringing to you, he is saying, is of urgency all our fathers, he speaks in this, in this tautological way, all, of course, but Caleb and Joshua, they did not enter into the land of promise, but they perished in the wilderness. 
Now, what place in the Old Testament is more serviceable in denouncing self-reliance than to look back at the wilderness generation, the first generation after the Exodus? Because they might have said, we've come through the Red Sea dry shod, we will enter the land of promise, but they did not enter into the land of promise. Romans 9, 6, and 8, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. By the way, where he references our fathers, and he's going all the way back into these Old Testament settings, he's speaking to primarily a Gentile congregation, which demonstrates that they are our fathers too, because we trust in Jesus Christ, and throughout the ages, there has been one professing people of God. And so he says, we were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. God was present with them, and he guided them by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And they all passed through the sea, but they died in the wilderness wandering. And in verse 2, he says, and we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is to say, in reference to Moses, we're baptized, which means they became the disciples of Moses, who represented to them the mediatorial work of Christ, ultimately. Now, again, by the way, a passing remark that I think is important, that our Baptist friends that we value so highly often make use of this passage in order to try to prove baptism by immersion, but you really won't find it here. I remind you that the ones that were immersed were the Egyptians upon whom fell the Red Sea, and that kind of immersion we really don't want. So in verses 3 and 4, there are other privileges that are mentioned. He references the manna that God gave them so that they would have food in the desert. And in verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So in Rephidim, there was no water for the people to drink. You remember Exodus 17, the Lord told Moses that he would stand literally on the rock, and that Moses would strike the rock, and water would flow from the rock in order to quench their thirst. And not only did it meet the need of physical thirst, but it was a type of the water of life that would pour forth when Christ was struck by the rod of God's power and wrath for our sakes. That rock, he says, was Christ. And by the spiritual rock that followed them, you should not think of a rock rolling behind the children of Israel in the desert, which quite frankly is the way that some of the rabbis thought. And he may have that in mind because he wants them to understand the difference between what he is saying and what the rabbis taught. But the point is that the source of water was Christ. The rock, the one following them, who was with them in their need, was the one who supplied their needs. This was Christ. And so despite their many privileges, in verse 5, we read, nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, that word overthrown could maybe be better translated strewn. 
So the idea seems to be that if you were there with that first generation in their wilderness wanderings because of their disobedience, their bones were strewn throughout the desert wilderness. That's literally the meaning of the Greek term. And he uses all here five times in verses 1 through 4 to stress that it was that generation that passed away. And young people, we certainly can learn from this, can we not, that being in the majority does not mean a thing in spiritual matters. They all perished in the wilderness, but two, going with the crowd is never the right motive in the Christian life. So listen, it was not enough to have privileges. It was not enough that they drank water in the wilderness. It was not enough that they had manna given from heaven if they did not themselves drink water from the rock who was Christ, if they did not know Him, if they did not trust Him, if they did not believe in Him. They sin, therefore, against privilege, and privileges do not equate with salvation. And the saddest way to hell is sitting in a church among the people of God surrounded by privileges and laden with gospel sermons. To have perhaps the privilege of a Christian home and a Christian family, perhaps to be reared in the context of the church, maybe even to have made a profession of faith, having been baptized in infancy or at that point when the profession is made, perhaps even coming to the table of the Lord, all wonderful privileges, but those privileges do not justify anyone in the sight of God. And many have made the mistake of thinking that because they can make a profession or because they can participate in privileges, that those things can be trusted and relied upon. But no, it's the giver of the water. It's the giver of the privileges. It's the giver of these gifts to whom we must direct our faith and attention. So it was for all but the tiniest remnant among the ancient professing people of God that perished. That's the first thing we see. That's a very serious matter, the privileges of the fathers. But then secondly, we see sin and punishment, sin and punishment. And this takes in verses 5 through 10. Verse 5, we read, nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased. That's uh, an example of understatement, most of them. God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness These things are powerful warnings, he tells us in verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so, these are powerful warnings for the complacent. Example, that word in verse 6, is type, Uh, what Dr. Barrett sometimes calls picture prophecies. And so he's saying to us, these in the Old Testament, these things were patterns, they were models, they were like paradigms, that if we walk in this way, we will also have the same result. And so their actions show that they were not believers in Christ, shown through the Old Testament shadows and sacrifices ultimately. The warning is that one might share in the privileges of God's people and yet be unbelieving and lost. And Paul, the thing that I find remarkable here is that Paul is the theologian of assurance. In all of his epistles, he constantly loves and enjoys to help to bolster the assurance of the people of God. 
This is the one who in Romans will say, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And he points out that there's nothing, nothing anywhere, nothing at any time, no circumstance that can separate us from the love of Christ. And he is not in the habit of shaking the believer's assurance of faith. However, Paul is very straightforward about presumption, and he is very straightforward about complacency. And even though he does assure true believers of their faith, although he does speak to us about crying, Abba, Father, because of the Spirit that indwells, yet at the same time, he is thoroughly aware that there will be those in any gathered congregation of the people of God that are not following these Old Testament passages correctly. They are simply living on their privileges and they are not trusting in Christ. And so those that perished in the wilderness did not want God. What did they want? They wanted the privileges. They lusted after evil. And so in Numbers 11, in Numbers 34, in Psalm 78, in Psalm 105, what pictures of self-indulgence do we find in these Old Testament passages of the professing people of God? Charles Hodge put it this way, it was especially appropriate as a warning to the Corinthians not to desire participation in the sacrificial feasts of the heathen in which they had been accustomed to indulge. So he wants them to make direct application of this Old Testament passage and these others to their desire to go into these pagan temples and to participate with their friends in the sacrifices that were offered to idols. For those who think that warning has no place among God's people so that everything always always must be positive and everything always must be upbeat, God's Word does not pander to that immaturity. And where that happens and where that kind of thinking prevails in a church, it will produce immaturity. And in verse 7 we read, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You see the appropriateness of the comparison. The Corinthians would be exposed to all sorts of idolatrous temptations in the feasts that were offered to the the false gods in Corinth. And then he says, well, remember Numbers 25 and Exodus 32, when Israel rose up to play around the golden calf and called it the feast to Jehovah. So what do these Corinthians expect when they attend a pagan festival and participate in pagan feasts? Charles Hodge again, it is not enough to make a thing right that we think it be so. So they might have said to Paul, Paul, everything's fine. We know we're believers when we walk in. We're believers when we walk out. We're just participating with our friends. We're having relationships. Hey, we're going into this place and we might win some people to Christ because we're developing friendships with unbelievers in these pagan feasts and festivals. Well, you can think that way, the Apostle Paul might say to them. But thinking it doesn't make it right. And he is coming to them authoritatively as the apostle. He's speaking God's word to them, and he's showing them it is not right. And so in verse 8, he presents them with another pointed negative. 
We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. And since idolatry and fornication are often linked, such as in Numbers 25, when temptation would present itself for Christians feasting in the temple of Aphrodite, which was the lead temple in Corinth, at which at some point, I can't say in Paul's day, I've not been able to trace the answer to this question, but at least at some point there were a thousand sacred prostitutes that were a part of the temple of Aphrodite. What are you thinking going into such a place? The cult of Aphrodite dominated the city, ruined lives. The gospel of God's grace had come there through the preaching of the Word of God into such a city to save and to free shackled sinners from this sin. What Christian in his right mind, if I may paraphrase what Paul is saying, what Christian in his right mind will want to go into the temple of Aphrodite to be tempted to fornication? You are on the precipice at best. And so the warning that Paul is giving is, beware Beware, you are allowing your culture to determine your thinking rather than God and His Word to determine your thinking and your acting. So you may not be a believer if you make such choices and have such involvements. And this is a warning to the complacent. The Lord uses warning to keep His people safe. And they were slain in one day three and twenty thousand, He says. Now, what about the day in which we live, the place in which we find ourselves, the time and our setting? Is it so different? Uncleanness is everywhere. It is all around encouraged. It's in the music that we hear. It is in film that we, I'm speaking culturally, watch. It is in photography. It is simply in media of all sorts. So we must help one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to have no place in our lives for impurity, to stay away from whatever incites to uncleanness, and to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. In verse 9, we have another pointed warning, a negative with no smiles. He says in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Interesting, the best texts read, do not put Christ to the test. Well, they were testing Jehovah. Why can he say this? Because Christ is Jehovah. And he's saying to us, do not put the Lord, do not put Jehovah, do not put Christ to the test. Another example of the deity of Christ just in solution in the New Testament. Do not put the Lord to the test. The wilderness generation provoked the Lord. Numbers 21 verse 5. Why have you brought, up, brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And so here's another instance of assuming the deity of Christ, and he's saying to us, do not test Christ. Do not put the Lord God to a test. And so Paul takes us to Numbers 14 through 16. And what did grumbling lead to in the lives of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? The earth swallowed them up and those related to them. And then there were the 14,700 people that died in the plague. 
and they were not satisfied with God's will. They were not satisfied with God's provision, and they grumbled against God, and that was the evidence that their hearts were not right. Who of us have not done this? But pastorally, I'll mention an individual, you will have no idea who it is, I will not mention any names, but I'm thinking about one person, but there actually have been many that grumbled and complained and complained and complained and complained. And finally, the elders discovered that there was great sexual sin in this individual's life. The grumbling and complaining was there because this deeper sin had gripped his heart. One can lead to the other. So already the Apostle Paul, in pointing to the Old Testament, has pointed to idolatry and sexual immorality and trying God and grumbling in order to say to the congregation, don't you understand how serious sin is? And such patterns, as Paul points to, are simply nothing with which to play. They destroy, and they reveal unbelieving hearts. And so now we go to the third thing that we see, the pointed warning, the pointed warning in verses 11 through 13. In verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So by way of example, these things are given in the Old Testament for you who are sitting here today. Literally, again, the word is type. It's a type. Charles Hodge put it this way. They were intended as historical pictures to represent, as Calvin says, the effects of idolatry, fornication, and murmuring. And he says they are written... I mean, they're there, they can be read, it's right there in the Bible, so that we may be admonished upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Now, we can spend all morning, could, on what that means, but let me simply say, it means the last times, the time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ, the last times when temptations are great and greater and the battle is strong and must be stronger, a certain time is given to this world and no more. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, everything is leading to that time where Christ returns. And he's saying, look back to the judgments in the Old Testament, in Scripture, because each of these judgments ultimately is a warning and also points to the judgment that is to come. It's a similar language, by the way, as in Hebrews 9.26, where it tells us that Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the encouragement is Christ once for all came to atone for our sins in this last time at the end of the ages. But the Apostle Paul in this passage wants us to know that in this time in which we live, there will be greater and stronger temptations, and the battle is more fierce, and we need to be, if anything, even more aware than were the children of Israel. 
The conclusion that we should draw from the warning is in verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Hear it again. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh, an application of, for example, Proverbs sixteen eighteen that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So it's a matter of the heart, loving the Lord, trusting the Lord, believing in the Lord, depending on the Lord. And this is what Paul wants us to learn from God's dealing with the church visible in its Old Testament setting. Again, Charles Hodge, no degree of progress in your Christian life, no degree of progress we may have already made, no amount of privileges which we may have enjoyed can justify a want of caution. So the warning then comes to the complacent. One cannot throw caution to the wind, one cannot find security in church membership or in your baptism or in privileges. Our security alone comes from faith and dependence upon the source of those privileges, our Lord Jesus Christ, so that holiness is a fruit of knowing Christ, and without holiness no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14 tells us. God infallibly keeps His people. The saved can never be lost, but the kept will persevere. Part of that holiness is humble confidence in God alone. So those who thought, I'm a Christian, I can just go to the temple of Aphrodite and participate in these things, and I'll be fine, I can eat with the pagans and not be tainted by their rituals, not be tempted by the sexual sin associated with Aphrodite, that's not faith, that's presumption that may well show that this person has not believed at all. And so the more careless the more reckless, the less cautious, so much the more do we open ourselves to temptation and sin. I'm going to repeat myself. The less, the more careless we are, the more more reckless we are, the less cautious we are, so much the more do we open ourselves up to temptation and sin. And so are you, are we growing more dependent upon God's Word and Spirit or less so? Does He write these things to such people in the past for our example? Then let us be sure to learn from it. But every regenerate heart would also rejoice to hear what the Apostle Paul says in verse 13, that very well-known verse that many of you have memorized No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. No believer can say, this is beyond me, the temptation is too great, I cannot bear up, I cannot overcome, I can't resist. No human being could. No, not at all. If you're a true believer in Christ, that's not true. But do you realize, do you understand, have you given thought to the fact that when you actually go through temptation, we come to know ourselves? That the true believer going through temptation actually trusts Christ more? That we begin to recognize that 
we cannot keep ourselves, but we must depend upon Him, that it shows me my weaknesses when peculiar temptations come my way. And so we fall back upon the faithfulness of God, and He will preserve His people. Do you remember how He began the epistle in chapter 1 in verses 8 and 9? When he speaks of the revealing of the Lord Jesus, when he comes again, he says in verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He begins with assurance, and it's true of all true believers that you will be kept until Christ comes again, but it's still necessary to warn And when true believers do fall, they are renewed again to repentance, but the person who habituates sinful habits, that person is not relying on the promise of God. And so, true believer, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God designs the escape route for every tempted believer. But the word escape, I just learned this week, quite frankly, as it is used in the non-literary papyri of the day, in other words, the way the Greek word would have been used in the marketplace, means end or completion. And he says we must endure. So he doesn't say that it's an easy matter. You endure it. You trust him and depend upon him and go to his word and you endure the temptation until the end or its completion. And Romans 8.32 is so applicable. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And so whatever our need may be in our time of temptation, the one who atoned for our sins is there for us if we will but trust him and turn to him. Now, More of this comes in the next passage. And I want to bring this to a conclusion, not a quick conclusion, but a conclusion. And something I think that it's really important that we do this morning is take just a little time to understand the relationship between warning and the fact that the Lord's true people can never be lost. The Bible is plain that the truly regenerated sinner cannot be lost. Behind salvation is the eternal election of God, the plan of the triune God, the purchase of the Son, the effectual application of the gospel to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Lord knows who are His, so why warn us if the true believer cannot be lost? If He keeps us, why warn us? And the answer is simple, really. He is addressing us humanly. We're not stocks and blocks, but we are fallen human beings with fallen human faculties, though now regenerated. And so God uses promise primarily, but also exhortation and command and, yes, even warning, just as any loving father would warn his child when he sees his child possibly getting himself into a fix. And he informs our minds and addresses our wills and affections. In other words, the Lord keeps safe the true believer, but he uses means for doing so. And warning is one of several means that he uses. 
So what is a faithful pastor or elder to do when he sees a number of his people persisting in rebellion? Well, you, you say, if you continue this way, you will show yourself not to be what you profess yourself to be. And every true believer will heed the warning and believe and repent, and God uses the warning to produce endurance. And therefore, God decrees that His elect will be saved, preserved, and will persevere to the end, but He uses the means adapted to our humanity, and this relates God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, take a moment and turn to the 27th chapter of the book of Acts. Let's look at a divinely given illustration of the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. In Acts chapter 27, this is when the Apostle Paul is sailing with others to Rome, and there he will stand before Caesar. And in Acts 27, 21 through 26, listen to what he says. This is, this is about the possibility of shipwreck. They're in the storm, driven along, it says in verse 17. So in verse 21, this is Acts 27, 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart and there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Now, in this passage, God has revealed to the Apostle Paul what he has eternally decreed. He has, he has said to the Apostle Paul, you're not going to be lost, and the men with you are not going to be lost. The ship is going to run aground, but all of you are going to be safe. Well, does that mean that the sailors should just kind of lay back and do nothing? That they shouldn't be involved in, in helping the ship to arrive at that point that God has decreed? Be involved in being the sailors that they're called to be? Not at all. Look at verses 27 through 32. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So Luke is recording this. He says, we, he's speaking of himself there. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stem and prayed for, for uh, on the stern and prayed for um, a day to come. And as sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. You see that? Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And it happened just as God told him. None of the men were lost. They were shipwrecked. But do you see what we have here? 
God says, Paul, you're not going to die in this. None of these men are going to be lost in this. All of these men with you are going to be saved. And yet the Apostle Paul says to them, unless you stay in the boat, you will not be saved. There is God's sovereignty and there is human responsibility. None of them could be lost because God predestined it. Nonetheless, there was the responsibility to obey the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. How much more so is that true in our spiritual lives? That God promises all of his truly saved people. Behind this is God's electing grace. You cannot be lost. We should take heart in that. We should be assured in that. But at the same time, if you think you can go off into immorality and participate in the feasts of, of Aphrodite worship, human responsibility, the sovereignty of God. So if someone goes off into Aphrodite worship and ends up lost, it's not because God's election has failed. It's because that person is not truly trusted in Christ. Now let me remind all of us of the main theme of this passage, that privileges are just not adequate to save. Our privileges are wonderful, but privileges are not sufficient. There is only one who is sufficient, and that is Christ. He is the only Savior of sinners. There is no other. Do you know Christ? Are you drinking from the rock? The spiritual water from the spiritual rock who is Christ. Are you drinking the water of life from the one who said, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And I wonder if you know the words of this old gospel song. O Christ, in thee my soul hath found and found in thee alone the peace, the joy I sought so long, the bliss till now unknown. I sighed for rest and happiness. I yearned for them, not thee, but while I passed my Savior by, his love laid hold on me. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they'd fled and mocked me as I wailed. The pleasures lost, I sadly mourned, but never wept for thee, till grace the sightless eyes received, thy loveliness to see. Now none but Christ can satisfy, none other name for me, there's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. None but Christ can satisfy. Come. Come to the waters and drink. Come to the source of the water, Jesus Christ. Trust him. Rely upon him. Depend upon his word of promise. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.